if you're visiting our regular teaching pastor has been going through the book of Hebrews. And as I was thinking through what would be a compliment to the book of Hebrews, I wanted to do something Old Testament to show that the Old Testaments are Christian scriptures, that they're ours in as much as the New Testament is. And I was thinking about the book of Deuteronomy as a good complement to the book of Hebrews. When I was growing up, my favorite movies of all time were the Star Wars movies. You know, beyond liking the movies, I liked the games, I liked the toys, I loved all of it. And at a certain point, I got to share that with my little sisters. And if you're going to share Star Wars with someone, you kind of have this decision you have to make. Am I going to show them Star Wars, the original trilogy first, and then the prequels, or am I going to go through what George Lucas would have done if he could have known he was going to make all six movies and be successful in it, which is go one, two, three, four, five, six. And there's merits to both, right? If any of you were in the movie theaters in 1977, you would say there is no merit to going to see The Phantom Menace before you see the original Star Wars. But I grew up in the era of the, the second trilogy, and I see the merit of, I want to see the surprise on my sister's face when you have that moment where you realize that Darth Vader is, in fact, Luke Skywalker's father. A tension that you don't have if you watch from the beginning, you would know that. But then also, there's this fulfillment of seeing the rise and the fall of Anakin Skywalker into Darth Vader and ultimately his redemption. But you have to choose. When it comes to the scriptures, I'm kind of in the same crossroads where I don't know what I like more. Do I like celebrating the fulfillment of things in the New Testament or going through the work of anticipation and tension that the Old Testament establishes? And we've been enjoying in Hebrews going back where the book of Hebrews, nearly every verse is direct quotation or borrowed language or borrowed ideas from the Old Testament. And we get to celebrate week after week what Christ has done. And going back to the book of Deuteronomy, where we've had a lot of time of celebration, we're going to go back into this period of anticipation, which I think both will serve us well. The book of Deuteronomy is a very misunderstood book. In a lot of ways, it serves as Israel's founding document. It's kind of a, a pulling together of their legal system, their history, their identity. This is your God. These are the people that you are. It's very important to Old Testament theology. Deuteronomy could be broken down by the Greek translation of its name, which is Deuteronomos, second law. It's the second giving of the law of God. But it's not just a recapitulation. It's not just restating the law. It's not in case Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, in case you lose those in a fire, you also have Deuteronomy. There's a different intent. And the intent of Deuteronomy is to explain the law. Deuteronomy opens up saying that Moses endeavored to explain the law to the people. And in this explanation of the law, we're introduced to certain things that may be common to us and familiar to us, but up until this point in the Old Testament, it hadn't been. And that is the notion that you could summarize the law in saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That comes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is also the most quoted book of the Old Testament from the lips of Jesus, possibly with the exception of Psalms. So why does Jesus focus so heavily on the book of Deuteronomy in his earthly ministry? Well, is that not the exact issue of the people of the day is not getting the heart of the law? Following a codified set of rules and missing the heart and the intent of the law to which Jesus repeatedly goes back to what is the point of the law? Jesus himself and his own temptation, every time that Satan would come to him with a temptation, and sometimes a temptation that is a twisted promise of God, every single time Jesus came back to him with words from Deuteronomy. So it would have behooved the first century Jews to understand Deuteronomy a little better, and I think it would serve us well as well. Structurally, Deuteronomy is kind of a synthesis of what has happened in Israel's history. You are the people that God saved out of Egypt. You are the, God, the people that God has set his affection on. And then it also pushes the story forward. Because you have these sections where it will tell Israel, Israel, you need to obey your God. You need to obey your God, and when you don't, he's going to save you. Israel, you have been chosen. You've been elected as God's people. 
And don't think that it's because of your righteousness. Don't think that it's because of your strength. It's not because of that. It's because God chose you. And so Deuteronomy introduces profound theology very early on in the Bible. Deuteronomy also serves as case law. In a lot of ways, it serves as case law. It tells us how to understand other parts of the Old Testament. Have you ever been reading the Old Testament and something crazy happens and there's no comment and it moves on? And you're like, what are we to think of this? Sometimes you feel like you're missing part of it. You're missing the part where God says that was good or God says that was bad. And a lot of the Old Testament assumes you have a knowledge and understanding of what the law is. We're recording a history in a place where God has given a law. And a good example of this, I like this, if you look at the book of Isaiah, it opens up with an introduction of who Isaiah is. He's a prophet, and he was a prophet during the reigns of these kings. And the second verse starts off with, I call heaven and earth as witness against you. And it sounds kind of cool. You know, it's, it's elevated language. God says, I call heaven and earth as witness against you. But that's not random. God said multiple times in Deuteronomy, when you disobey, I will call heaven and earth as witnesses. And so Isaiah starts off and you realize court is in session for the people of Israel. God's enacting the terms of the covenant. And so Deuteronomy becomes important for us to understand if you want to understand how the Old Testament works. Another important thing to understand is that the second giving of the law is being given at a very specific historical event. This is to the second generation of Israelites. The first generation has perished in the wilderness. Why did they perish? Because they did not trust God. They did not obey them. So after 40 years of wandering, after everybody 20 and over has died, the Lord is talking to the second generation who's at the border of the promised land. It's a big part of the book of Deuteronomy. We need to know how to live in the land. Secondly, Moses is about to die. It's already been said that Moses is going to die, and you have to ask this question, what are we going to do without Moses? Israel, especially the generation that's alive right now, has no identity apart from Moses as their leader. And we're set up with this problem. And all of this establishes the context for our passage. So if you would open up to Deuteronomy chapter 18. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 through 19. Think of this text as anticipating the death of Moses, anticipating the future when there will not be a Moses with the people of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This passage is setting up a police sketch of someone that we're anticipating in the future with certain descriptions. So the first point of our sermon today, if you're taking notes, would be the profile of the prophet. We see this promise of a prophet, and I'm going to give three descriptors that this prophet needs to fulfill in order to be in the running Right, in order to say this guy might be the guy, we're anticipating someone after Moses. The first of those, as we're reading, it says that God will raise him up. The second is that he will be like me, namely Moses. And the third is that he will be um, from among you, from your brothers. So the three basic expectations is God's going to raise him up, he's going to be like Moses, and he's going to be an Israelite. Let's deal with the two simplest ones first, because I think that what is clear in the Old Testament is that we need a little more work to understand exactly what it means to say that this person is like Moses. It is not taken lightly in the Old Testament to compare something to Moses, a person to Moses. 
But let's deal with this. The Lord will raise him up. I want to make a reasonable case for Christ being the prophet of promise here. If we're dealing with the Lord will raise him up, we could deal with the baptism of Jesus, where the voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And that'd be more or less a case closed, right? But we also look at the life of Christ that he came claiming to speak the words of God, Those words were attested to by signs and wonders, and the very voice of God came from heaven attesting, this is my son, right? So there's no question about whether Jesus is raised up in his ministry by God himself. What about this next simple qualifier, that he must be an Israelite? That means Gentiles do not apply for this position. He's going to be an Israelite. And if anything, it gives more weight to some of these passages that we tend to skip over, Why is it that we see these long genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, and then even, you know, references in Romans 1 that Jesus is from the line of David? Well, if he wasn't, we have to dismiss everything else, because it's paramount that he's an Israelite. It's been said that he's going to be of the tribe of Judah, he's going to be the house of David. We have to prove this, right? Some of us pay money to find out who's in our family, like three, four generations back, right? In Israel, they had to keep meticulous records. We need to know. We're trying to find the Messiah. We need to know what family you're from. We need to know what tribe you're from. And there is no argument that Jesus is, in fact, an Israelite from the tribe of Judah. He qualifies in that regard. Now, what's the third qualifier? The descriptor building this profile is that he needs to be like Moses. Moses is a prophet. If you ask any one of you, if we ask anyone in the room and you said, what do prophets do? It's probably going to be a pretty common answer, right? They speak for God. They tell the people what God said. And that's true. And Moses really becomes an archetypal prophet. He sets the standard for what prophets are supposed to do. And in that delivering of the word, there's something inherently mediatorial about it. Right? He's the mediator between God and man, even in just communicating God's word. In Exodus, it's very interesting, the language that's used when Moses is called out. You have all these dialogues between God and Moses where God calls him and Moses says, I'm not a good speaker. And God says, I will be with your mouth. Right? You don't need to worry about how good of a speaker you are. And he's like, yeah, but I'm a really, really bad speaker. And he's like, fine, Aaron, you can have Aaron if it makes you feel better. I'll tell you what to say. You tell Aaron what to say, and Aaron will tell Pharaoh. And it says that when you speak what I say, you will be as God to him. Right? Not in his person, but if you bear the words of God, it bears all the authority of God. So as a prophet, when Moses goes to the people, he says certain things in the beginning. They don't believe him until signs and wonders are accompanied by what he's saying. And by the time that the Exodus transpires, if you want to flip over to Exodus 14, Exodus 14 verses 30 and 31, Israel's been taken out of the land and they've seen miraculous signs and miraculous wonders. And they've gone through the Red Sea and the Red Sea has swallowed the Egyptians. And this is what it says in Exodus 14 verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So you see that God actually did some of these things to testify to his greatness but also to testify to say, listen to Moses because he speaks for me. And it goes further than that because in Exodus 19, if you flip over, God says explicitly that one of the reasons that there were such miraculous signs that showed the presence of God at Sinai, do you remember the smoke and the thunder and sound of trumpets and fire? One of the reasons in Exodus 19 verse 9 is to attest to Moses in that the people would believe. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. 
right? So what's becoming true of this office of the prophet is that you can't just say things. God has to work miraculous power to prove that it's from him. And so Moses is being elevated even in verse 18 of chapter 19. Just listen to the way that this is set up, and I want you to listen carefully to the last phrase of this section. It says, Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Don't pass over that. It's gone to great lengths to show you the imagery and the sound and the terror of this event, and it says, and Moses went up. Right? And the people have not forgotten that. Moses is the one who goes up before the presence of God on our behalf. In Exodus 24, it says that Moses goes up with some of the other elders, and the imagery is that of heaven. And it says that he eats with God, in the presence of God. And then he goes further up the mountain alone with no one else for 40 days and for 40 nights. And do you guys remember what follows that event? The golden calf. So Israel is waiting at the base of Sinai. Their representative goes up, and it does not take long for them to say, surely he's dead. No, we watched him go into the fire. We watched him go up there. We have not seen him return. Let's make a God that we can worship. And in all of this, even in Israel's sin, Moses is elevated as this very important character. And who mediates for Israel when they sin? When God says, I'm going to get a new people. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And Moses says, Lord, please forgive them. Please forgive them. And we start to see that this prophet is not just the one who speaks for God, but he's also the one who speaks for the people to God. He stands between and he mediates. And this is what we see in the book of Deuteronomy that was read for our scripture reading, is this reminding them that when you guys were at the mountain, you were the one who said, this is scary, send someone else. It was from you guys. And you were right. God said, you're right in what you have spoken. You can't live with me. You will die. You need a mediator. And the whole Old Testament, the whole Pentateuch is set up to answer this question. How can we be with a holy God? It's terrifying to be with a holy God. How can this be? But Moses sets up our expectation of what the prophet should be. Flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Just trying to hammer this point home, Deuteronomy 5.5. Moses reminding the people of Israel their history. He says, Well, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. You were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. Reminding them that they were the ones who themselves felt the, the demand and the need for a mediator. The final point, and I think this is probably the most important uh, text in the Old Testament that makes this whole notion of saying like Moses, not to be taken lightly, the most important text, Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. And this will make us more careful to say that a prophet is like Moses. Numbers chapter 12 I'll read the whole section because it sets the stage for itself. 12 through verse 9. It says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And listen to what they say in verse 2. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And this is chilling. And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. 
And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And then the Lord gives Miriam leprosy for saying such a thing. They, hey, we're kind of like Moses. He gives her leprosy, and who intercedes, who pleads on her behalf but Moses himself? And this is exactly the reason why your expectation after reading Deuteronomy 18 is kind of dashed immediately. If I was an Israelite at the time, I would be thinking, hey, we're facing this problem of Moses. He's going to be gone. And we have this guy who's going to succeed him. And he's actually one of the only faithful people from the original generation. He gets to go in the land, and even Moses doesn't. And the Lord is attested to the fact that he's a genuine leader in Israel, and that's Joshua. Right? Joshua actually will lead probably the most faithful generation of Israel. But this is very interesting. Flip to the end of Deuteronomy. Any of your hopes that Joshua might be this prophet get dashed in very explicit terms. And after our read of Numbers chapter 12, where we're told to be careful about who we say is like Moses, because Moses speaks to God face to face. We come to the very end of Deuteronomy, where the baton has been handed to Joshua. Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. And... There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So the text kind of says, don't get too excited. Because there has not arisen, even in Joshua, a prophet like Moses. Jesus is presented in the New Testament in a lot of elevated parallels to Moses. And sometimes we miss them because we don't really think in Old Testament terms. But even the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus goes up onto a mountain and he explains the heart of the law. Why are we told the topography of where he did that sermon? Why are we meant to think of a, a certain area? Up on a mountain, there's a man and he's teaching a bunch of people and he's talking about the law and he's actually showing them how they've gotten the law wrong. Why in the beginning of Jesus' life do we have this narrative where all the babies were going to be killed. Does that sound familiar? Was it not Moses who originally was the baby that should have been killed that God used to redeem a people? What about this in the feeding of the 5,000? After the feeding of the 5,000, you have the scenario where this man is teaching and he provides miraculously food. And then the people say afterwards in John 6, surely this is the prophet. Why do they say that? What about this work makes them think that this is the prophet? Well, isn't this really similar to what happened in the time of Moses? That the people were out there and complaining and they had no food and it was provided to them miraculously? Then it makes a lot more sense when right after that, Jesus goes into a story saying, you guys remember that Moses fed you guys with food from heaven, but it was the Lord who fed you and I'm the bread of life. Right? He compares himself to that event. It makes sense that they're starting to make some of those connections as well. There's other things like Jesus leaving Egypt as a child, or Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, showing even similarities to Israel's time, representing Israel in David's time. Jesus offers a new covenant on the day of Passover, which is the most significant celebration in the mind of Israel coming out of the era of the Exodus, when God passed over and did not show us wrath because he chose us. This is interesting as well. Jesus offers living water to the woman at the well, to a Samaritan woman. And 
She is the one who says that we know that when the Messiah comes, he's going to teach us all things. And it begs the question, where does she get that from? Where does she get that notion from? Because Samaritans only believe in the first five books of the Bible. So there's a lot of other places where it would be easier to say that, but she is thinking in terms of the prophet who is going to be the better teacher than Moses. So you have all these things where Jesus is set up to be better than Moses, a better mediator. And then in the New Testament, we're told that there is one God and there's one mediator. And who is it? You can say it out loud. One mediator between God and man, the man. Yeah, Christ Jesus. So what we have as an example in Moses, Jesus is obviously set up to fulfill perfectly, but even greater. Flip over to Hebrews. We were in this passage not long ago, Hebrews chapter 3. I'm only asking you to flip over because I want you to see some of the specificity of the language. Do you guys remember our passage in Numbers 12 that we were just in where Aaron and Miriam are rebuked and God says, why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Because he is faithful in all my house as a servant. When we're introduced to Christ in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 3, chapter 5, it says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Right? So really, we take that as compared to Christ, that's a lesser role because it says afterwards that Christ is faithful over all God's house as a son. But that text that he's referencing was actually meant to elevate Moses, not to put him down as a servant, but to say, you're not like Moses because Moses is the servant of God. Well, if Christ is greater than that, how incredible is that? The mediator, the Lord Jesus, greater than the one that even Aaron and Miriam were rebuked for questioning, to saying we're kind of like him. Jesus is greater. Jesus is the son in all God's house. So the profile of the prophet is clear. It has to be the Lord Jesus. And really, that question of who is like Moses, Jesus being greater than Moses, is one of two crucial issues in this passage that make it very hard to fulfill for anybody else. The second of that we find not in the profile of the prophet, but the purpose of the prophet. The purpose of the prophet. Look back to Deuteronomy 18, verse 16. Deuteronomy 18, 16, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. This question, this, this promise that the Lord gives to Israel is prompted by a historical event, right? It's not a random promise. The promise is prompted by this what happened at Horeb? What did the people desire at Horeb? Horeb is a name for Sinai. It's the broader mountain range where Israel was around the proper place that is Sinai. So what happened at Sinai that Israel so desperately needed a prophet? It says, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Or, he, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Right? Israel themselves, after seeing the presence of God, say, we can't be with him. And so this prophet is promised in the context of he has to solve Sinai. This prophet has to solve that problem. It does us no good to know that we have a God who loves us and wants to be with us if ultimately that love has to burn in wrath against who we are. That's not good news for us. And Israel, even in their rebellion, could know that. So he has to solve this problem. And here's the, here's the great issue. If you wanted to take a thesis of the Pentateuch, of the first five books, what's the goal? What's going on here? Where are we in redemptive history? There's this continued statement that God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Right? This is who he is. He's a saving God. But he says, this is the goal. I will be your God and you will be my people. And here's the problem. He says, and I will dwell with you. Right? And Israel at Sinai sees what it looks like to have the holy God dwelling with them. You guys remember the book of Exodus? If someone said, what is Exodus about? You would probably say the Exodus. Right? But half the book, more than half the book, they have already finished the Exodus. 
And they're at Sinai, and they're receiving laws, and they're receiving descriptions of how to make the ark, and how to make the tabernacle, and all this effort, all this time is given to those things. Why does that matter? Because all those things were established to show what it takes to be before a holy God. Because Moses, who went freely up on the mountain over and over again, when God's presence goes into the tabernacle that they have built, Exodus literally ends saying that Moses can't go in there. And then what's the next book? Leviticus. Here's the system that works so that occasionally you can interact with your God. Right? What's the book of Numbers? Continuing to fail to do that well and perishing in the wilderness. And Deuteronomy is that final kick or that final commission to try to do it. But this whole promise, this whole thesis of the Old Testament is God's going to be with us, but he can't. It will kill us. You yourself said it, Israel, it will kill you. So this prophet is set up as the solution to that issue. The presence of God equals death for sinners. And one of the most heart-wrenching moments in the Old Testament, when Moses comes down, you can compare it to the greatest spiritual high you've ever had. Moses comes down the mountain and he thinks he's hearing the cries of war. But what he's hearing is worship, loud worship for the calf. And Moses comes down and he grinds up the calf and he pours it in water and he makes the people drink it. And then he tells the people to kill their brothers, kill their sons who have done such a thing. And then the next day, this is what Moses says to the people. You have sinned a great sin. And now I will come. I will go up to the Lord perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. So Moses learns exactly what it means to represent a people before a holy God. He says, let me go up, perhaps I can make atonement, perhaps I can make it right. And he even goes to the length of saying, Lord, if you can't forgive them, blot me out. And whether that's Moses offering himself as a sacrifice, or saying that I can't bear to see them be destroyed, because I'm one of them, God corrects Moses' thinking. He says, Moses, I will blot out everyone who sins. But now, lead the people but know this, when I visit the people, I will visit their sin upon them. Moses learns that he cannot make true atonement for the people. He cannot truly stand between the gap. And that's where this promise is so important to us that a prophet like Moses, but able to deal with Sinai, is so necessary. I know I'm making you guys flip over all over the place, but I want you to share some of my excitement of studying and just throwing pages around. Flip to Matthew chapter 17. Knowing what we know about Mount Sinai and the language around Sinai and the imagery, I want you to listen to the language around the Mount of Transfiguration. And see if you hear any similarities. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we, ha we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. They go up on a mountain. They see the glory of God. They're terrified. But Jesus says, rise and have no fear. How can he possibly say that? Israel was right in saying, we're afraid and we're going to die. How can Jesus say, have no fear? Because Jesus can actually deal with the problem. Jesus can reconcile them to holy God. Moses and Elijah being there is beautiful. First time Moses is in the promised land. But Moses and Elijah testify to Christ because they say, this is awesome, let's make tents, one for each. And at the end, only Jesus is there. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, Elijah actually in the Old Testament being set up repeatedly with language that says maybe this guy is kind of a new Moses figure, and then ultimately he's taken away. Moses and Elijah testifying that this is the one. This is the one of promise who can actually deal with our sin. That was, that's what allows the audacity of a Hebrews 4.16, a draw near with confidence. That's an alien idea to Hebrews. You don't draw near to the throne of God. You don't draw near to the temple. You don't draw near to certain concentric circles around the holy place. But we draw near with confidence because we have one who has gone behind the veil and actually solved it. Now, all of this is where I run into the the danger in studying of just being excited at how great the Bible is, how great our Lord is at exalting himself in the scriptures and showing cool connections and awesome, you know, same uses of phraseology that it's easy for me to fall into the trap of missing what is actually said in the text, which is listen to this prophet. We have not finished with identifying the prophet. We need to listen to him. He has authority. Says it is to him you shall listen. My words in his mouth that he speaks for God. And knowing this Jesus, we see that John 1, not only does he speak for God, he is the living word. He's the embodiment of the word. And Hebrews 1 says he's the final word. This is it. This is the end game. This is God's final plan for redemption. The Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, all the people, even they say, this guy is not like one of the scribes. He speaks with authority. They recognize the voice of authority. And back to the transfiguration, when it says the command in Deuteronomy to listen to him, it's not a surprise that God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Listen to him. He bears the authority And I love this phrase that I read in my studies of Jesus, unlike Moses, reflecting the glory of God that he saw on the mountain. Jesus has an unborrowed glory, right? The veil of his incarnation, his flesh is just taken back for a moment for them to see what is his nature. Unlike Moses, reflecting the glory of God where they had to put a bag on his head, Jesus has an unborrowed glory, And how miraculous is it that what became the problem in the Old Testament of how can we get to the bare minimum of saying someone's like Moses? We can say we have someone far greater than Moses. That's the best story ever written, right? God knows exactly how to exalt his son in history and in the pages of scripture. But let's listen to what he said. There's a warning in chapter, or in Deuteronomy 18, verse 19, there's a warning. It says, whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Listen to these words from the book of Acts, from a better sermon on the same topic. This is Peter. He says, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, 
But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. The prophets would plead that you would listen to the law of Moses. All the prophets that followed would plead, return to God, obey, that you may be blessed. Please return to the Lord. And in the height of tragedy in the Old Testament, in the prophet Jeremiah, who has a ministry of failure and a ministry where the fate is already sealed, God says again and again to Jeremiah, do not pray for this people and do not intercede. But Jesus comes with a message of repentance. Repent and believe. It is an imperative. It is a command. It's a soteriological imperative to turn from your sins because Christ has done it. It's over. Your redemption is secured in time, in place, in history. You need only believe in the Son. And if you do not listen, there is not another prophet coming. If you don't listen, you will be destroyed. Repent and believe. Acts says that times of ignorance have passed, and now God commands all men everywhere to believe. Turn to the Lord. And for those of us who have turned to God in repentance... What is our command? The Bible says to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Right? We have a simple command. The Lord has paid the price and we can obey. We've actually been brought into newness of life, new creation, new creatures. The real us is hidden in heaven, in Christ, with God. We're grafted into the vine, new life, new identity, new name. All that's been done for you. And so we can actually live holy lives. The Gospel of John, Jesus' own words when he says what his mission is and what his message is, he gives warning with it as well. He says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus' commandment is eternal life. He commands that you repent from your sins and that you keep with the repentance that you've proclaimed. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The letter to the Romans tells us exactly what it looks like to live in newness of life. We've been freed from the legal weight of the law. The law will not be brought into question at judgment day. So what are we to do? It says in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Why did he do this? In order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Believers, it is, it is paramount that we Dedicate to God our efforts and dedicate to God our imagination and commitment to one another, even to stir each other up to good works. But as those who dwell on and focus on and love the gospel of our Lord Jesus, it's a category error to not then say, what can I do for my Lord? He has done everything for me. We're not working to put stuff into our pile for heaven to say, look what we can present. It's done. 
We work freely to the joy of the Lord, and we can obey him in the imperative to bring the gospel to the nations, to bring the gospel to the people around us. We are free to obey in that grace that we've received is not meant to lead to idleness or to slothfulness, and it brings into question whether you are a recipient of that grace. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As those who testify that we have received the good word of a better prophet, we were saved in part that we may live in newness of life. That we don't have to be like the Israelites who had a law that they had written on their hands and they would wear as frontlets between their eyes and they were supposed to have it in their house and have it on the way and talk about it with their children, but their life couldn't line up to it. The church is not supposed to be that same group of people. Right? A lot of times in conversations surrounding the church, we talk about the inherent hypocrisy. There's a hypocrisy that we'll never fully escape from. But I would love that if people talked about Tri-City Church, and they said, here, you know, they've got all these sins. I'd love that those were all a bunch of lies. <laughs> that it actually was not true of who we were. That we were those who bore love in our relationships with one another, and we were sacrificial. And we were those who were dedicated to obeying God out of what he's already done for us. Again, another great place to consider when we think about the way that the gospel is supposed to motivate in us a newness of life. Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing for salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Later it says the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So we have an obedience in our lives because the Father has provided the Son as the one mediator. But we are to obey. We don't need to be confused about what our obedience contributes to heaven. It contributes nothing. It is satisfied. It is finished. But now we can live in freedom and obedience, delighting in our God. It's Him we proclaim. The Old Testament had set up this anticipation, this need for someone who can bridge the gap. And there's so many miraculous ways that it does this. It sets up these systems that are doomed to fail so that we can see Jesus for who he really is. I want to conclude this morning by reading from Hebrews chapter 12, jumping ahead a little bit to what we'll get to be taught in a few weeks. But I just want to read through this section having gone through a lot of what the Old Testament talks about by this problem of the presence of God, I want you to listen to what is true for believers and heed the warning as well. This is going to be Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. This is for you, believer, today. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of, righteous, of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking." 
For if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Lord, I thank you that in all of our wanderings, and all of our error, in all of our inadequacy, and in all of our sin, and the sin that we've committed in this very room, Lord, you have paid the ultimate price. Where Moses could not atone for sin, Moses could not plead on our behalf sufficiently, Lord, that Moses himself had to learn that our God is a consuming fire. I pray that we would remember, Lord, that you have not changed. You are a consuming fire. And that speaks to the greatness of the redemption that you've secured in your son. That we could have confidence to draw near to the same consuming fire that shook the mountains. I pray for anybody here who has not heeded the words of this prophet this great prophet, the son, the final word. I pray that you would work in them repentance, that you would grant them faith to believe, to have freedom and pardon for their sins. And those of us who have received pardon, Lord, that we would see it as an impetus to train for godliness, to train to be righteous in the way that we live our lives, to denounce ungodliness. Lord, Give us fruit that keeps with our repentance. Give us fruit that shows that what we say is actually taking effect in our heart and in our lives. Lord, let us dedicate our, our thoughts and our minds and delighting in you that we get to joyfully join in the, your presence without fear because Jesus is the one who can actually remove the fear of your presence. God, you've been so good to us. I pray that we would offer you worship as those who have been made worthy to worship you, Lord. Praise the things in your name. Amen.